0: There was recently a news story out of New York. Kestenbaum, a prominent auction house specializing in Judaica, was in possession of a bunch of important documents from pre-war Europe, preparing to auction them, and the federal authorities swooped in and seized them on the grounds that they had been looted by Nazis, I suppose, Nazi allies, by uh, looted from the Jewish communities of, the, of, of pre-war Europe, and that they were illegally confiscated, and that, they, and that these, these artifacts therefore belonged to the descendants of the families that lived in those communities, and Kestenbaum, who had purchased them from, uh, purchased them from some, somebody who somehow had gotten a hold of them, did not have proper title to them, and therefore, uh, and therefore the, the Fed seized them. The facts of the case are obviously a little murky. The, the federal authorities have been investigating this case for months already, since February. But the, the basic question is, what does is the, the Torah say about stuff, property that had been looted by military powers, by occupiers, by various uh, totalitarian regimes, so we're going to study tonight several chuvas that deal with this question. As usual, Enkal tachas there is nothing new beneath the sun. The first discussion of this question basically goes back to the Rambam, and the related discussions going down to the contemporary period. So we'll begin by taking a look at a chuva of the Rambam. Rambam's tshuva is pretty brief. It doesn't, uh, doesn't provide us with a lot of detail about the case. But the tshuva is as follows. In the Sefer Peer Hadar, a collection of responses to the Rambam, the Terenu hadraso. Please, uh, uh, may his uh, glorious eminence please uh, teach us the halacha in this case, Mishakonomea sholim kisveha kodish. Shololim, an evocative word, Shalal means plunder, plunders. Unclear if they were bandits, you know, organized crime, unorganized crime, uh, organized crime with a badge, state organized crime, military powers. The Rabbin going to address this in his response. But there were Shalalim. There were people who had plundered Kisve Kodish, Svarim. Veheim i-bateh knisayis Shabira we know exactly what the provenance of these Kisviat Kodesh are, is. The provenance is that they had come from, a, from synagogues in a, another city. They had been plundered, and now the people who stole them, presumably non-Jews, had not, did not have much use for them themselves, so they wanted to make money by selling them to the nearby Jewish community. Ransom them, sell them. So, Im yichem. So this person, someone has already bought these farim from the Sholem. He wants to know, can he keep them for himself, or does he have to return them to the synagogues from whence they had been looted? Second part of the question, assuming he has to return them, can he at least recoup the money he paid, the ransom, the, the price he paid for these farm, can he at least demand that they compensate him for the money he spent to buy them back from the people who stole them? in the achzirem, and if he has to return them, so where does he return them? Does he have to return it to the same shul from which it had been taken? Oh, Or can he return it to a different shul? As long as they get returned to some shul. In that city, I guess. Please teach us the halacha in this case. That is a standard... Uh, standard expression, and may God reward you for your efforts in addressing our question. Says the Rambam. Says the Rambam, tshuva. So the Rambam addresses right away, he asks, well who exactly were the Sholem? Were they government Sholem Or were they NGOs, non-government Sholem. So he says, if this plunder had taken place with official sanction, the king had authorized... Apparently, they weren't actually the... It doesn't sound like they were actually the government's uniform military, but if the government had sanctioned this plunder, they were kind of like privateers, letters of mark they had. If they were, uh, if these were authorized by the government, then the person who bought the Kisve'a Kodesh from them has full title to the Kisve'a Kodesh, is battle, Hektish. The Hektish, the, the fact that these are communal property, Hektish property, is nullified by the officially sanctioned plunder. Why? So Rama makes a very curious argument for this. Instead of invoking Choshen Mishpat Sugyus and Babakamba that deal with, maybe we'll touch on those later, that deal with the rights of kings and governments and so on, in a civil context, Rambam brings a somewhat different source he says "In even the vessels of the Beis the Mikdash itself when they were seized by enemy forces their Kedusha is vitiated that uh, vile people have entered the sanctuary and defiled uh, defi- desacralized the Kalim of the Mikdash then that applies to these svarim as well. Rambam is referring here to a gemara. Rambam is referring to a gemara in it's in it's in the handouts. The gemara is in Avodah Zarah. The, the gemara says that there was an office, there was a room in the in the in the in the, in the, in the Temple Mount where the base hashmerney hid. They, they they put away. They they, they did gneiza. To the Abneim is a shikzu ancha to the stone to them is back that had been defiled, desecrated by the Greek by the Greeks when they, when they occupied the the Harabais. So the Gemara says that can how can they do that if, if these were if these were kodesh if they, if these belong to uh, that that if you have a Kalim of the base of mikdash just because someone worshipped them is it really so is it really the case that they become Osres of of zara they weren't theirs to worship they were the base of mikdash. So the Gemara says, "Amr papa hasam kara ashkech Yes, actually, the the men of Yavon did have the the dark power to defile, to to ruin these these stones of the base of Mikdash, the stones of the Mizbech, because it says in Yecheskel boba pretzim v'chilaluha that that the that the robbers, pretzim, strongmen. Entered the temple and desecrated it; they profaned it. So that means that the that that when the enemy when the enemy by force of arms occupied the Beit Hamikdash and took control of the Beit Hamikdash and all of its uh, all of its all of its buildings and all of its kalim, they have the, the, then the, the, the Beit Hamikdash kalem lose their status as Beit Hamikdash kelim. Says the Rambam, this is the same principle that applies here when a when a duly authorized, governmentally authorized band of band of uh, soldiers enters and takes things from the communal from the communal synagogue, they lose their status as as hectic, as communal property, and therefore the Rambam understands this to be a civil halacha, not just a halacha dealing with the kedusha of the basic of the basic mekdash. The Rambam understands this is a civil law rule as well that the the title to the property is now the, the, the original title of the original owners, the original shuls is lost and the person, the, the people who purchased these things from the plunderers, now have proper title, proper legal title to these assets. And this is based on the Gemara. Again, as we'll see, there are other sources for this, Din Malkus Adina and Kibush Mulhama, There are other halachic principles that might point in the same direction. Rambam brings a somewhat curious one that the same way that the Greek soldiers in the time of Hanukkah were able to somehow... Acquire some type of title to the stones of the mizbech or the base mikdash itself, and thereby they could, thereby they could uh, nullify its kedusha. So too, these robbers, these plunderers, assuming that they were operating with government sanction, as the Greeks were. The Greeks certainly were uh, duly authorized agents of a sovereign power, an invading sovereign power, to be sure, but a sovereign power. So too, the these plunderers in the Rambam's time, if they were operating. Under the color of law, if they, if they were operating uh, as authorized agents of the government, then when they stole the Sfarim, they acquired title to them, and therefore the Jew who bought it from them, he has proper title. However, the Rambam says, Im melech. If, however, they were stolen not by the Edict of the King, these were just uh, private operators, then he does not get title to them. They have no title. They're simply thieves. He has no title. Then he has to return the svarim to the shul they were stolen from. However, he is entitled to recoup his cost. That's a gemara the Rambam brings that anytime someone purchases stolen goods, at least if he does so in good faith, not realizing they were stolen, he's entitled to recoup the money he paid from the original owner when he turns it over to him. So, so a very simple ruling of the Rambam. It hinges entirely on the question of whether the plunderers were operating with government sanction or not. In the case that they were, then they are entitled to take whatever they took, and therefore, uh, and therefore, they have proper title, and the person who bought from them has proper title as well. A remarkable ruling, might makes right, so to speak. That the might makes right. The fact that they not any might if they're if they're not governmentally sanctioned, they're not. But a, but a government, if a government. Uh, authorizes plunder, then, uh, then, they, then the government's agents acquire a proper title. Again, Rambam doesn't discuss why the government would have authorized such plunder. Was, is there any, are there any legal guidelines for when the government can do this? If they simply uh, authorize rioting against innocent civilians and, and looting against innocent civilians, is that also valid? Rambam, you'd think he should have asked this. If he, if he asked the question, do you mean government-sanctioned or not? you think an important follow-up question would have been, and if it is government-sanctioned, if it was government-sanctioned, uh, did it have a proper legal justification? Rambam doesn't mention that. Maybe he assumed that everything done by the government in his time typically did have uh, proper sanction. We'll discuss this point in more detail soon. What uh, kind of constitutional rules does the government have to follow before it can just declare property of, of its subject's forfeit? But in the meantime, that's the Rambam's ruling, that if the, if the plunder was government-sanctioned, then title is transferred. If the plunder is not government-sanctioned, then title does not transfer. We find a similar ruling several centuries later in a somewhat more elaborate chuva of the Radvaz. The Radvaz was in Egypt in the 16th century. Radvaz was asked the following case. This will be reminiscent of some of the tshuvas we discussed uh, a few weeks ago about the catastrophe in Ancona, the tragedy in Ancona, the Red Vaz's question is as follows. Yorina Mara Again, flowery language, appealing to the the Red Vaz to please help them in their, in their halachic dilemma. Please tell us the answer to our question. Ruvain. Haila Rishus Pachanus Pahalvoa Saribis. Ruvain had a, a kind of government concession to engage in banking, in money lending. We'll see in the details of the Red a little bit later exactly what he had is not, enti- not entirely clear. It wasn't a tangible asset. We're not talking about title to actual real property. We're not talking about actual cash or, or money. We're talking about some kind of legal license that was, it was considered a, an asset that the person owned, a license, a, a government charter to engage in banking. This was a valuable asset, the right to engage in banking was very valuable. You could make a lot of money if you were a uh, government-authorized a government, uh, government uh, moneylender. So Ruvain had permission, government-sanctioned, to engage in moneylending and banking in a chanus, in an office, in a shop, in a certain city. The city was under the jurisdiction of a certain king. Li'amim, it came to pass, Garmu, as we say, Harabim, unfortunately, the Jews were expelled from that city. I guess the king expelled them. It's not clear. Passive voice. Garshu HaYehudim, the Jews were were expelled from the city and uh, probably by the king. So, and including the the moneylenders as well, were all chased out of the city. Step one. Step two, Bahiyah Yom, after that, Ninaru Rishayim in Haaretz, the villains, the, the king, or the, the the anti-Semites, the ones who had been causing trouble for the Jews, they were expelled from the city. Who expelled them? The Pope, the The Pope conquered the city. Uh, the, I always, I, I always remark. I think it was Stalin who, uh, you know, famously cynically said. How many legions does the Pope have? Well, back in the Renaissance times, as we read recently, the Pope uh, did have legions. The Pope had an army. The Pope had political interests. The Pope had the Pope was a player in the in the great game back then. So the Pope then conquered the city from these Rishayim who had been uh, who had been, who had behaved badly to the Jews. The Achrazeh, the Pope, however, his uh, his control didn't last that long. Apparently, the Achrazeh Kavshadukas, a duke, then vanquished the Pope. And again, the Pope was a fair game as well in the, in the games of kings and so on. So a duke conquered the territory back from the Pope. And the duke is the current leader, and he's currently in, uh, he, he's currently in the game of musical chairs. The, this game of thrones, he's currently, the, he's currently the one in charge of the city. He allowed the Jews to return. The Jews had been expelled under the first king. Apparently they had stayed out during the Pope. And now he uh, allowed them to return to the city... Again, whether it was because he liked Jews or more likely because he recognized the commercial value of having Jews in his city. So he, he allowed the Jews to return to the city, and they began banking again. And he apparently, this new duke, rearranged the government concessions, and he gave the, he gave the, he gave the banking concession to Shimon, to some other Jew, some other Jew who was, uh, who was not the one who had, who had initially been the one to have this concession. Ruving then came back and said, mine, I have the right to this concession. You should transfer it to me, because it was mine, and I lost it illegitimately. We were expelled, we were, they behaved badly toward us, but I'm here and I want it back. So Vata and now they told the Radvaz, Torah, please shine the light of your lamp of Torah. Lahoros hadin, in me, teach us, please, the halacha: Who is right, Ruven or Shimon? So there are a lot of different ways, a lot of different angles we can take toward this case. Advise himself approaches it from a number of different perspectives. We're going to focus primarily on the first half of his tshuva, where he tre- where for purposes of the first half of the tshuva, he assumes that this concession, this uh, royal right, this government government granted right to engage in banking, is an asset. It was an asset that was essentially seized by the various governments that took successive control of the city, and eventually this asset was transferred to Shimon. And the question, the way he looks at it in the first half of the tshuva is, did did the government have any legal right to seize this asset during the various uh, political turmoil, political upheavals that successively swept over the city? Says the Radvaz, yes, they did. What the governments did in seizing this banking concession was legitimate. Why? Says the Rambam. Red- see, see, his, his, his reasoning, his basic holding echoes that of the Rambam. He, again, the sources he brings are a little bit different, but the, his basic position is, is similar to the Rambam. Kaimalani says, Dina D'malchusa Dina. The principle is when the government makes laws, makes regulations, they are binding, they're recognized by halacha. Afilu Beis <laughs> she says, even, a, even an actual tangible asset like a house your property, real property, that a person inherited from his ancestors, if the king seizes it and sells it to Shimon, Shimon acquires title it. Again, not necessarily if the king just arbitrarily seizes property of, uh, of a law-abiding citizen without any kind of due process. Uh, that's what Ahav did to, to, to Navas. We'll discuss maybe that a little bit later, maybe. But the, in this case, where he took it in the context of conquests, that is valid. Why? says the Radvaz, the this is the law of kings. when they conquer a territory, a country, by winning a war by force of arms. So the standard international law is the standard law of kings is Kol Habatim all the real property in the city, houses, fields, vineyards, haim shalom. Everything belongs to the king. And the people, too, the subject people, the people he has conquered, the occupied the citizens of the occupied territory, or the annexed territory, whatever the right word for it is in this case, they all become property of the crown. Not the way we look at things today. Today we have very strict rules about respecting civilian property. Back then, the Radvaz says, the law of kings was different. When the king wins a war, everything that he conquers is forfeit. Real property, people themselves, is all forfeit to the crown. Hilkech, says, even if the Jews had not been expelled, and the first king himself, when, when the first king conquered that city, and he decided that he's, that he's going to, going to uh, redistribute the assets, he's going to seize Reuven's property and give it to Shimon, sell it to Shimon, Zacha Shimon, when kings conquer territory, then they have the right to do with the assets, dispose of the assets as they please, and that is all valid under the rule of Dina de Malchus Adina. The he, bring, he now brings language of the Rambam not from the Chuvah we read but language from the Rambam in the Yad Ha-Hazaka. the Rambam has a uh, systematic discussion of Dina al he says that kings have the right to seize property of their subjects the, the Rambam writes a king who becomes angry with his servants now the Rambam is not clear what he means by angry he's going quali- to he's going to clarify that a little bit a little bit later First he just writes, if, he's ang- if, he becomes, if he becomes angry at one of his subjects and he seizes his field or his courtyard, that's not Gezel, he has the right to take it, and if he sells it to someone, that's the, that person acquires uh, proper title. Because again, that's Din HaMalachim, Th- those are the rules of kings. He can just seize property from their subjects, they can seize property from their subjects when they become angry at them, and he can give it to somebody else. However the Rambam goes on, but Melech Shalokach Chatzir Osada Shalacham Medina Shalobadina Shalokach, if he just takes things arbitrarily, passes bills of attainder, and just goes around seizing property, like with and Navus, then uh, that is Gzela, that has to be returned. So the, the Radvaz brings the first half of the Rambam, that if he becomes angry, and again, the, the Radvaz is glossing over the question of the legality of this anger, but the, but the Radvaz says, Rambam tells us, the Gemara tells us, Din Lokhusudina, Rambam elaborates that if a king becomes displeased with one of his subjects and seizes his property, he can do that. Therefore, the Radvaz feels that he can just uh, take the property of the people he conquered and dispose of it as he pleases. Kolshkane, says, a fortiori, Kalvachomer, in our case, he says, where it's not a question of a king getting, getting angry during peacetime at a subject, rather it's a case. Of a king who captured territory in a time of war. He says, because there, the, the people themselves, the captured people, are Chay of Misa, their lives are forfeit to the crown. And we pass in, Haruge Malchus, that when people are executed by the king, Nechseyim Lamelech, the Gemara brings the and the Gemara Sandra brings the brisa that their property is forfeit to the crown as well. This is a very strange argument. When the Gemara says, Haruge Malchus, Nechseyim Lamelech, so Rashi explains, and that's, I think, Pashup on the Gemara, that the Gemara means if they're criminals or traitors, if the, if the Melech executes somebody for, uh, for a capital offense or for treason, then yes, that if, the, if he's killed through the Sanhedrin, then his property goes to the Yarshim. If the king kills him through the Mishpanah Melech, then the king seizes his property. That's, I think, what, uh, the, 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 that I think the Midrashim talk about that in the context of Navas and Achav as well, that by killing him somehow, by the melech killing him, he'd be entitled somehow to his uh, to his property, but be that as it may, that's talking about someone who's killed because of, uh, again, because of crime or treason, to say that when the king, to apply this to a king who wages a war, it's, uh, it, it, it seems an odd assumption to make that all the captured people are considered traitors, I mean, maybe if they rebelled, if they rebelled against their lawful sovereign, maybe they're traitors, but... Uh, if the king just wages war against a neighboring country and wins, it seems an odd assumption that all those people are considered haruge Malchus. Rashi says even further, Rashi says that's talking about a Melech Yisrael. They not, not may not even be talking about a Melech, right? But okay, the Red Vaz applies it to, him, to a non-Jewish king. He seems to apply it not just to criminals and traitors, but to uh, subjects who are vanquished, citizens who are vanquished by, uh, by, who are on the losing side of a war. Their, their, their lives are forfeit, their property forfeit, everything they have is forfeit, this all fits into din al Adina, therefore the king has the right to do whatever he wants and take all their property, and when he decided eventually to transfer it to Shimon, that is fine, and Shimon is perfectly entitled to the property. Now, Red Vaz elaborates further, in case he hasn't been clear enough yet, he says, there is a rule that the principle of yeish, there's a halachic principle of Yeish that when the owner of property, lost property, gives up uh, gives up hope of ever retrieving it, then property is forfeit. That does not apply to Karka. That's, that's a famous rule of Elamitzias, a person loses his wallet or his shoes or something. So the rules of Yeyush apply, it does not apply to Karka. So the Red Vaz says, so, so this concession, he spends uh, the, the second part of the tshuva spending a lot of time on whether we view these legal concessions as karka or metalin, they, they, they have to do with specific locations. Maybe they're like karka. They weren't the actual title to the property itself. Maybe they're not karka. So we can discuss whether it's karka or not, but Yeyush doesn't work on karka because karka ain't an exelus. Says Radvaz, that's not relevant. That's a category error. We're not talking about, we're not talking about gzela and Yeyush, here, he says. Gzela is gzela. The, 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 gzela means you stole it. Of course, the gzela doesn't get title. The, generally, it doesn't get title. We're talking about Dinam al he says. We're talking about a king who has the right, to, uh, the right to dispose of property, as we discussed earlier. Again, he reiterates, this is the accepted usage of kings. They conquer territories, countries from each other, and they acquire title to everything, people and assets in the conquered territory. And then he says something very interesting, something that has a lot of modern resonance. He says, the, much of what he says, of course, is very uh, alien to our notion of the laws of war and to international law and uh, civilized behavior. But the advice goes on and makes a very uh, trenchant point. He says, If you're not going to grant the basic rule that what a, what, a, what, a, what a king, what a government conquers, he, he acquires title to, he says, He says, no kingdom, no government has title to its territory. Everything they have is taken from other people. There are endless wars. Everything we have belongs to the, the native peoples, the indigenous peoples. Everything is conquered one from the next by wars. And they obviously have title to it. So the, the whole international order, he says, the whole, the whole idea of sovereign territory and sovereign power is all rooted on an assumption that when you win wars and you annex and seize the property, it's yours. So that, that, that's, the, that's the fundamental principle that underlies the, the entire system of nation-states, he says. So, obviously, we have to recognize that in halacha as well. Therefore, this king who seized the, the city might does make right, at least on the international, international uh, scale. And therefore, the king is entitled to all the people and all the property in the, in the territory that he took. And... And good, and, that, and, and that's what he does. He can—that's uh, that, what he does. He, he, he can keep all the property, and including these banking concessions that he took. Redvaz adds another chiddush, another very important rule. He says, "Even if this was not standard international law, even if this was not the way kings usually behaved, even if kings generally leave the civilians to themselves and leave them with their property." But if the melech, this king says, I have a new rule. When I win wars, I take all the property. Other kings don't do that. Well, they're suckers. I want to do that. I want to take all the property for myself. Says the Radvaz, that's fine too. The king is not bound by some kind of traditional notion of international law. The king makes his own laws. The king, the, the, a king makes law for himself, for, for his country, for his territory. He makes the rules. He's in charge. Hare shaper din as we'll discuss soon. The, the Rishonim articulate very clearly, if the king makes laws, that's valid. If you just steal stuff, that's not valid, as we mentioned earlier from the Rambam. The king can't just arbitrarily seize property. How do we decide what's stealing and what's law is a very difficult question. We'll, we'll, we'll turn to that in a moment. But the Red Vaz says, if a king changes, if a king deviates from typical custom, that's all right. He has the right to do that. He's not bound by, the, by, tradi- by tradition and custom. He can change the rules as he goes. As long as the rules he makes, he says, are shove. This is one of the key criteria that Post can articulate for a law to be valid. It has to be universal, it has to be consistent. If it's arbitrary, that's what we have in the United States law. That we have, we're not, we're not uh, bills of attainder, where we, a bill that singles out by name an individual is, is fundamentally unconstitutional because it violates this basic rule of shove. Halacha has the same rule, the king cannot arbitrarily single out an individual or a group of individuals, that he can't do. But as long as his laws are uniform and consistent and universal, that's fine, even if he deviates from existing usages, that is fine. V'chein he das rov That's what most can say. Now the Red Vaz is obviously hinting at the fact that not all can say this, and the truth is, this is a big machlokis. And, and this, is a, this is a very, very important point having to do with din Malchusa in general, and our topic in particular. It's one of the most fascinating, albeit uh, difficult to nail down, aspects of the Sugi of din Malchusa Dina. There are a number of comments in the Rishonim. The Gemara tells us din Malchusa Dina, it doesn't really say anything about scope and parameters. There are a number of comments in the Rishonim to the effect that even the king is governed by some kind of law. Law, constitutionality, Written constitution, unwritten constitution, you, more, more likely a general notion of fairness. A number of Rishonim in different contexts make the point, as we just said earlier, Dina de Dina, the law of the king is valid, but Gazel or Chamsa Nusa, the melech is not. If the melech just steals, that doesn't automatically become law. This is already, this is already pretty clear from the Gemara. The Gemara talks about, the, 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 the Gemara in a couple of places mentions the apparent permissibility of tax evasion. The Gemara immediately says, really? Tax evasion is legitimate? But what happened to Dina Malchus Adina? The Gemara says, you're right, the only time tax evasion is, is legitimate is when we're talking about an illegitimate tax, a tax that's not legitimate in the first place. Why would it be not legitimate? So the Gemara gives two examples. One of them is, it's someone who isn't operating, going back to the original Rambam, he's not operating by the sanction of the king, he's omer Me'elav, he's operating as a rogue, uh, independent tax collector. That's one example. You have this in third world countries the various policemen or gangsters, cartels in, in Mexico just set up roadblocks and demand taxes. They say, you know, we're, we're the law now, and we demand, uh, we demand uh, tribute and taxes. That's Moche's omer Me'elav. The other who came to the Gemara is Moche's la kitzva. If the king takes an arbitrary amount, there's no kitzvah, there's no law, there's no, there's no rule that sanctions what he's doing, then that is also invalid. So the Rishonim bring that back Amara. They say, you see, not everything the king does is automatically considered valid. It has to be Eshla Kitzvah. There has to be rules. It has to be somehow fair. If it's arbitrary and unfair, then it becomes Gezel, not Din, and, the, and, and it's not valid. The Ramban, the, when the Ramban expresses this doctrine, he says that the Gemara says, Dina de Valchusa Dina. The law of the government is the law, not Dina de Malka, not automatically whatever the king says. It has to be lawful. It has to be something the government does in, in, in consonance with governmental rules and norms, not just the king's arbitrary decision. Ramban anticipates John Adams and American Revolutionary thought by 500 years. John Adams famously said that the, that the difference between an empire and a republic, he said, is that is that an is that a republic is a government of laws, government of laws, not of men, as opposed to an empire where the maxim is, uh, you'll forgive my Latin accent, but the maxim is quote principi plasuit legis habit rigorum, what pleases the prince has the force of law. So that's the difference, Adam said, between a republic and an empire. And that's the, what the Ramana is saying. That din machusadina means that that a government of laws, laws passed by government within a framework of government, is valid, not of men. What, what the prince wants is not automatically not automatically law, not recognized as such by halacha. So a number of rishonim pachos ayoser make this point that din machusadina is valid only if the law is somehow fair and just and legitimate. The question, of course, becomes how we define fair and just and legitimate. One of the earliest expressions of this principle was made by Tosis. Tosis is talking about a specific case. It's one of those things you had to actually be there, or at least uh, be, at least be a student of medieval history to understand exactly what he's referring to. But basically, Tosis says that the Jews had certain privileges. They had certain privileges of free movement. He says that the way Tos describes it is. Mishpat HaYehudim, the Re said, the Re Balotosa said, Mishpat HaYehudim, the law of the Jews has traditionally been, k'mo parashim, they had the rights of, of knights, of freemen, that they can go wherever they want. And if one particular local tyrant uh, denies them that right, and says that if you, if you travel out of, my, out of my region, I'm going to seize your property, and he did so, they traveled and he seized their property, that violates long-established norms, and that violates the, the rights of the Jews, and therefore, even though he says, well, I'm the king, and I just made a law that you can't do that, that, that I, I take away this right, the king cannot do that, Tosa says, this is, uh, this is not valid, because Ein hagun klal, this is, that's not din al that's not hagun, that's not fair, that's not right, because it diverges from a long-standing, well-accepted norm. That's like way the Gemara says, an arbitrary mechas, even though he's the king, even though he's the government, he just makes arbitrary decisions that are fundamentally unfair and not, uh, again, the, the, the will of the prince, not, not a government of laws. That's not, that's not valid. toses doesn't, doesn't explain to us, you know, again, Tosis gives us an example of a law of, a, of, an, of an infringement on Jewish rights that he felt wasn't fair, he doesn't tell us what the rule is, how we decide whether a given rule is fair or not. But Toshvah articulates the basic rule that some laws, are, they deviate from established custom, they're, they're just not fair, they're not right, they're not hagun, is not valid. The Ramban elevates this into a, uh, a powerful rule. The Ramban brings Toshvah and he says that the rule is anything the Melech does that's chok chadash, that's a new law that, that, that contravenes, that diverges from the, the traditional norms is not valid. The Melach has to... Sorry? Right. Just, just, just a, just a quick, quick question about the no-art Lord? The no-art require a, 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 a course of justice be established. It doesn't specify what justice is, but that might be a basis for uh, uh, establishing some sort of um, understanding that there is things that the, the, the courts are going to be uh, ruling on, so that it's not just an arbitrary, I'm the, I'm the king or the emperor, and I make, I make up the laws. So the Noahid laws are supposed to be there for everybody. Can you speak to what, what the Yishonim, those uh, of us have to say about uh, the basis of, uh, of uh, what the Noahid laws provide for mankind? Yes, so so Max is bringing up the question of the Noahid laws, the Mitzvahs Brain Noah. In particular, one of the laws is Dinim. We say that the non-Jews are commanded regarding Dinim. So that's a a very important point. There are actually a number of different opinions in the Rishonim about exactly what Dinim means. There are at least three major schools of thought. One opinion is that Dinim means that they are commanded to enforce the other Noachide laws, that don't steal, don't murder... That they're obligated to, uh, to have a, a system of, of, of justice, of enforcement, establish a, a penal and judicial system to enforce and punish violations of, of the other Noahide laws. A second opinion is that they are actually supposed to legislate, that it's true, the Torah says that one of the laws is don't steal, one of the laws is don't kill, that's the beginning. Beyond that, then beyond that the, the non-Jews are authorized and expected to establish uh, laws like, like, like governments have traditionally done, like the United States government does, like any, like any government does, that the, that, that the government is actually expected to, to, to legislate. That's what Dina means. So it's not just judicial and, and executive enforcing, it's actually legislative. There's also a machlocus, this is what I meant by three positions, maybe not three, but there's also a machlocus whether in general non-Jews are expected to follow Shulchan Aruch, all the laws of all the details of Helchus Gzela and so on, whether they are supposed to implement all the laws of the Torah, or whether those laws are for Jews, and whether non-Jews this is related to the first Mechaluch, whether non-Jews are given the right, and maybe even have the duty, to, to legislate and establish, establish their own rules as well. So, by and large, I think I think post can do assume that non Jews are expected, certainly to add to the to the Shemitz beinach are expected to add their own laws as well. The so so again, so, so everyone agrees that's what the Gemara means by din lachus It's clear from the Gemara. The Gemara says that the non Jewish government can collect taxes. The non Jewish government can seize property, kind of eminent domain to build bridges and so on. So the so the, the those things are obviously not implementations of the seven Noahide laws or implementations of, of Shulchan Aruch. Those things are prerogatives of the government to institute taxation, impose taxation, and, and so on. So the, so the generally it would be assumed that the, that the non-Jewish governments do have the right, certainly when dealing with their own citizens, with, 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 with non-Jewish citizens, to, to legislate and to run their countries. The question of din Malchus Adina has to do with when Jews are involved. When Jews are involved, and there are disputes between Jews that are rooted in the rights of the government, do we recognize the rights of the government to pass laws, and if so, what kinds of laws? So the Ramban is giving us a a, a major limitation. So again, many Rishonim say in general that his laws have to be fair, his laws have to be, besides being universal, the laws have to meet basic standards of fairness and uniformity and so on. The Ramban goes even further and says, based on this tosis, the Ramban says that deviations from long-standing usage, from existing usage, are not valid. That the Melech has, can only operate within the framework of the original kings, he can't uh, innovate. So later the Akronim, Akronim struggled to understand what the Ramban means. The Ramban Shita has echoes in other Rishonim as well. The Torah brings it, B'Shem the Ramah, Rameh, Halevi, Abulafia. There are a handful of Rishonim who take this position. And the Akronim struggled to understand what that means what made the first king more special than the tenth king? If the first king, can, someone made new laws, the, the, the kings are not uh, eternal like God, obviously, chas v'shalem, so, uh, so so, if the first king made laws, why did he have the right to, his laws were new, at some point the laws were new, they, they, weren't, uh, they weren't, there's no steady state of legislation for forever, so some king passed a new law at some point, so why is the first king, why is he allowed to pass a law Why can't the second king pass new laws? That's how all legislatures work. Each each legislature passes new laws. So what exactly is the Ramban trying to tell us? So the Akronim struggle uh, to explain exactly what the Ramban means. The Chaz in the 20th century, the Chaz has a bold interpretation of the Ramban. The Chaz tries to fit the Ramban into the general tenor of the Rishonim that Zela of the king is not legitimate. The word of the prince doesn't automatically legitimize, uh, is not self-legitimizing. So he's, the way the Chazanesh puts it is, war is okay sometimes, taxation is okay, theft is not okay. How do we decide what's theft and what's taxation? Some libertarians feel uh, all taxation is theft. So how do we decide what's legitimate taxation and what's theft and so on? So the the, the Chazanesh doesn't give us a very precise uh, definition, but he uses the following uh, evocative, picturesque language. He says... What the Melech does, in accordance with established norms, is valid. But something which midas of an of nun, something which uh, upright people, which uh, fair-minded people, think is iniquity, think is uh, unequitable and not fair, lo nitin lo, that he has no right to do. And that's what the Ramban means when he says that the king is not allowed to make new laws. He doesn't mean literally that he can't make. Any new law. He means Nira de kavanaso that of course he can make new laws, new details, new circumstances. He means something which is seen as fundamentally unfair. We would we might use the word unconstitutional in a in, in a broad sense and unjust, that's what he can't do. When I say unconstitutional, I don't mean so much, you know, the American constitution is written down, it's a formal written document. I mean more like the British notion of constitutionality or the, some of the Israeli notions of unconstitutionality where judges decide that a certain law is just not valid because it's fundamentally antithetical to uh, fundamental notions of fairness, of equity, of, of the rights, of the, of, it, it exceeds the rights of the kings and so on. So this is not a very useful standard the Chazanish is giving us. Who decides? The, the obvious question is who decides? In America, we have three branches of government. We have, a, we have a court system, a judicial branch that gets to decide. At least that's what the judicial branch itself decided in uh, Marbury versus Madison, that they're the ones who get to decide whether the other two branches are behaving constitution, constitutionally or not. A little circular, but that's uh, been pretty much accepted for several centuries now. But the Chazanish doesn't tell us in practice how, how, how countries are supposed to work. Are they supposed to have independent judiciaries? Are they supposed to ask a shallot to the postkin whether a certain law is, would violate the, the sensibilities of the asharim? He doesn't really give us much guidance for how this is supposed to work in a, in a realistic political sense. But the principle, at least, is that even the king is bound by certain laws of equity and of established limits on his power. When the Ramban says he can't innovate new laws, he means he can't exceed the bounds of... Royal prerogative, governmental prerogative, and he can't uh, he can't uh, breach the, the, the breach the rules of fairness. But I call upon him the, the Ramban Shita, the Ramban, and the, the Rama. Their Shita that the king can make new laws. However, that I'm not not clear how that acronym understood it in general. But the Radvaz is basically saying it's a das yachid. Going back to the Radvaz, he's saying that most post can say the king is allowed to make new laws. Again, of course, the Radvaz is going to agree that the laws have to meet some basic standards of fairness. They can't be gezel. Rambam says that also. But the Radvaz says the fact that this is a new law, the Radvaz makes the rather startling claim that uh, he, he goes, he's pretty much a maximalist when it comes to governmental prerogative. He says, even though kings in gen... Even if the matzios would be... The, 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 even, even if the international norm would be that when kings vanquish other kings, other nations, they do not seize all their property as, as uh, property of the crown, if this king decides he wants to do that, that's considered fair enough, he has the right to do that, he's now the king, he's in charge, he makes the laws, if his law is that a conquering sovereign gets to take all the property for himself, he can do that. Kolchkin, he says, that the norm is that the, the, the international norm is that way. The kings do do that, he says. But even without that, if this king decided that is how I conduct my my, my international relations, when I win a war against my neighbor, I take all his stuff. That is valid, the Vaz says, and therefore his his seizure of these banking concessions was valid, valid under Dina Malchus Adina. When he when he seized it for himself, it was his, and so on, and therefore. Uh, and therefore, Shimon, who he sold it to, has p- proper title to it, and Ruvain's title is forfeit. Rod Vaz goes on, he makes a number of other arguments as well, but these are the core arguments he makes, that even real assets, his other arguments deal with the particular case of banking concessions, which are kind of intangible assets, and anyway it's an asset that only really exists at the pleasure of the, at the, pleasure of the sovereign and so on. But the, the, basic, the basic holding of the Radvaz, the, the broader holding of the Radvaz, is the one he makes in the first half of the tshuva, that when the government seizes property because they vanquished, a, uh, a, they vanquished another nation, they can take all the stuff and give it to whoever they please. Briefly talk about one final tshuva on this topic, a contemporary tshuva, printed in the Sefer Darchechoshin. This is by Rabbi Yudah Silman, a leading, a leading Haredi Dayan in Israel, and Nebrak, he has a chuva about a woman. It's a long tshuva. It goes on for pages. I only excerpted uh, some of it here. His case was there was a woman who had had a great deal of property in East Berlin. She had, the, she had the misfortune of having her property nationalized, seized by hostile governments, not once but twice. First by the Nazis, and later by the communist regime, uh, the GDR, I guess, in, in, in East Germany, the, the communist government in East Berlin, in East Germany. Now, the woman eventually wrote a will, and she, uh, she wrote a will, and she bequeathed her property to a certain yeshiva. The question was whether she still had title to this property, whether, I don't know what the law was at that point, whether the, the governments were giving the property back to the people they had, they had nationalized it from or not. I don't know exactly what year this was and what the current political climate was, but the question was, according to Din does the Torah recognize the nationalization of her property, the seizure of her property by the Nazis and later by the, by the East German communists? So, regarding the communists, Rav Stillman has a long discussion going back and forth. It's basically within the framework of what we've just been discussing, that kings have the right, have pretty broad rights to seize property of their subjects, but within limits. It has to be within accepted norms of fairness, So Rav Solman struggles, he goes back and forth to try to figure out whether communism is, whether the nationalization of property, communist seizure of private assets, whether that is something that is uh, within the norms of governmental power. He says it has to be universal. This is universal. The communists were seizing everybody's property. It's not a punishment, he says. It's it's what he calls an ikaron musari, a moral principle, habodi le'i b'nei adam, Rav Stolman is no friend of communism. It's invented by people. <speaking> in <Hebrew> that uh, to each according to uh, that uh, that to each according to his needs. kaatslan <speaking in Hebrew> whether he is someone who is diligent or someone who is lazy. <speaking in Hebrew> whether he's someone who is successful and uh, uh, or not. Rav Stolman doesn't have a very high opinion of this. Uh, Ikaron <speaking in> musari <Hebrew> but that's what they believe. The communist, he says, and. Uh, is this valid on, according to Allah or not? So we quote some of the some of the literature, different what different Rabbanim said about communism. He says that um, he goes back and forth. He says maybe this is not bechalal yosher. This is not considered just and fair to seize everyone's hard-earned property and distribute it evenly to other citizens of uh, to other to other uh, other citizens of the state. He says chenadas no te lachria. And he's not sure, he says, but he's inclined to say that communism, wholesale nationalization of property, is fundamentally unfair, it's a fundamentally unjust, it's, 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 it's just too far a step, it's not something that that's in accord with traditional norms of governmental power and rights, and therefore it's Gazlanusa uh, it's and not Dina But he goes back and forth, but that's, he's not sure, he admits that it's a reasonable question, but he says that's what he thinks would be the halacha. Parshad, says, however, he says at the end, this is all with regard to the second nationalization by the East German communists, he says. But the first nationalization, he says, by the Nazis, Yemach that of course has no power of Yimlchus Adina, that obviously is pure theft. That's actually debatable. Rav someone thinks this is Pashut. It's actually debatable. As we saw in the Ancona discussion that we've seen earlier, postkim weren't actually, as we've seen in earlier discussions, postkim. It may seem strange to modern ears, but post even though they said Din Malchus has to be universal, they did not mean that it's illegal to discriminate based on uh, nationality, creed, race. Taxes that discriminated against Jews, taxes that were only levied against Jews, taxes that were levied against Jews at a higher rate than the general population, that is actually an explicit halakha in Shulchan Aruch, that is a well-accepted halakha, that's fine. Discrimination is I- illegal, to discriminate in, uh, individually, however, to discriminate against what we would call a protected class, an entire religion, an entire uh, nationality, that's fine. That was seen as perfectly normal by the Postkin. So the fact that the Nazis were anti-Semites wouldn't in and of itself invalidate their seizure of property. The fact that they were inhuman monsters, uh, may, may, maybe that, maybe there's some kind of rule that, that they were uh, genocidal you know, murderers, maybe that's why their laws are not valid. Hard to know exactly what what Silman means, but the point is... Seizure of property, nationalization of property, he's not sure whether that, communist nationalization, he's not sure whether that would be valid. Nazi nationalization, he thinks it's doesn't even have to be said, doesn't even have to be explained, it goes without saying that it's not valid. I, I, think, it should, I think it should be articulated. I think you do have to come up with a more rigorous articulation of, or any articulation of why you think it's so obvious that Nazi seizure, as we discussed in the, the earlier enkarno when, when the Pope sees property of conversos who were relapsed conversos, who, who had b- become Christians and then relapsed to being Jews, some postmen felt that was a valid Din uh, Malchus adina. Other Postman disagreed. Some of them disagreed for other reasons. They said it wasn't universal. This wasn't a law that was universally uh, imposed across Christendom. Some said the, the Pope had betrayed them, as we discussed. He had initially said that they were allowed to revert, then another Pope changed his mind, re- reversed the policy, but it's not so simple that, that, that an anti-Semitic policy is in and of itself invalid. I'll call upon Emir of Stillman, feels that uh, communist nationalization is debatable, but probably not valid on Dine Machus and Nazi nationalization of property is certainly goes without saying, Gazal Nusabalma, and not valid. So going back again to the case we started with, the Kestenbaum case, where where they, uh, the auction house, uh, somehow acquired various artifacts that the federal, the federal authorities alleged were looted from, uh, from the Jews who owned them in pre-war Europe. So again, Rambam and Radvaz tell us that, when, that when, when kings, governments, and their authorized agents seize property as part of government policy, they acquire valid title to that property and anyone they transfer it to acquires property as well, acquires valid title as well. There is such a thing, however, as we've said, there is such a thing as Gazel de Malchusa, there are ways that a king can behave, that a government can behave, that are just so unjust and so out of bounds that they would not be valid. Rav Stillman thinks that applies to the Nazis. Postcom in general say that if it's arbitrary, if it's not universal, if it's completely unjust or completely uh, at odds with what with what upright people fail as legitimate and just, which I think probably applies to Nazis. It, it, it is uh, pretty much universally acknowledged that the Nazis were about their general conduct was about as unjust uh, as could possibly be. So perhaps, according to most Postkin, according to all Postkin, perhaps that would be true. That we can argue that the, the Nazi behavior was so uh, was so far beyond anything that could possibly be considered traditional usages. I mean. Anti-Semitism is pretty traditional, as we said. It's actually recognized by the Shulchan Aruch as being legitimate in the civil context. But perhaps, as we've been saying in the context of Shulman's tshuva, perhaps the Nazi behavior was so so egregious that uh, everyone would agree that their seizures of property, aside from the murders that they did, uh, their seizures of property were so far beyond what any legitimate government would do, that it would not be valid under the, the proper usages of kings. But as we've seen, it's not at all simple. The, the early post-Rambam, the, the Radvaz, tolerate a good deal of things that we, we would not think would be legitimate civilized behavior of kings. Now the question is, perhaps we assume that norms have changed, or, and even if they haven't, perhaps what the Nazis did was just so egregious that even according to Rambam and Radvaz, what they did is just so, is, is just so, uh, so beyond the pale that it would not be valid in Malchus Adina, and then the original parties would still have title to their property. Again, we have to consider Yeyush and other considerations, but in terms of din Malchus Adina, a a case could be made that what they did was not valid in Dina Adina, and that the original owners would still retain title, which was the position of the federal authorities in this country as well.